0: Amen. Now, we'll dismiss our children to children's ministry, which happens by letting your kids walk in that direction. So if you would like to do that, you're welcome to do so. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, Proverbs chapter 16. Today we're talking about caution, care, and coaching for the self-righteous soul, or as one Puritan referred to, self-righteousness when we commit idolatry with ourselves. Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And Proverbs 16.18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now all of the words related to pride in these texts, whether it be arrogance or pride or haughty spirit, Almost all of the words that the Hebrew text uses to describe pride and all of the words in these texts bear connotations with height. They all have something to do with height or elevation. So all of these words have kind of a spatial sense to them. Now, in the ancient world, height was associated with certain advantages. Um, If you were on a high place, you were closer to God. You were considered to be saintly. If you have, uh, in a high place, you had a tactical advantage over others. There was a superiority that came in view of this. And if you were in a high place, you could see more clearly than others. So all of the words in our text so far related to pride bear this idea of being above And ironically, the prideful person thinks they are closer to God, they think they have an advantage over others, and they think they see more clearly. Ironically, the prideful person is exceptionally sinful, exceptionally inferior, and exceptionally blind. There's a fourth advantage that's woven into the concept of heights in the ancient times, and it's kind of a consequence of the other three, and that advantage is safety. So you can think of it this sort of way, because I am closer to God, have superior ground, and can see I am safe. But of course, these texts are saying that that's exactly the opposite of what is true. The great irony is that the prideful person is in a deeply vulnerable and untenable position, they are going to fall. They're not seeing anything well. So the idea here is, is that the prideful man or woman is deluded. Enter verse 25, which will be our main text for this morning, and that verse was repeated, has repeated for us here. It appeared also in chapter 14. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Today we're going to talk about self-righteousness. And we are used to saying self-righteousness, maybe it would help you a little bit to think of self-rightness, this sense of I am okay when you are not okay, this sense of superiority when you are in fact inferior, this sense of being able to see when you are in fact blind. Now let's dig into this verse, verse 25, in some detail and just kind of pick apart some of the Hebrew words that are playing here. When it says that there is a way that seems right to a man, the word for way is road. So there is a road that seems right to a man. And the word for right is the word for safe or straight. So it's this idea that I am on a road that is safe. Now the word for end is the hindquarters of an animal amongst other things, so it's sort of like You can kind of picture it this way. You could think of like a dog. It's like the the front end is kind of nice. The back end, not so much. Like, that's the idea of this proverb. There's something that starts out pleasant and ends in death. Right? And the word for death, by the way, means death. (laughs) Now... The idea of travel, in order to really get what's going on here, let's really grab hold of what it would have been like to travel during the time when this proverb was written. i have got to put our ancient thinking cap on and really remember that at that time in particular, picking the right road was a matter of life and death. It really did make the difference between whether you would survive or fail to survive, And that is because, among other things, the roads were full of robbers. When Jesus tells the story in the New Testament about the Good Samaritan, the basic plot of the Good Samaritan involves what? A man going along on a journey who is robbed and left for dead. And when his hearers heard Jesus say that, none of them thought, well, that never happens. They would have all thought, oh, yeah, that's a real thing. That's a common thing. It's common for people to start out on a journey only to be robbed and left for dead. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is outlining all of his struggles, and he's listing all of them in a variety of ways. And one of them, he says, I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers and in danger from bandits. One historian says of travel time, travel in Roman times, by the way, Travel in Roman times was the safest it had ever been. So our text is happening well before Roman times. But even in Roman times, one historian writes, time and distance were not the only headaches. Far more dangerous was the presence of bandits along the roads and the rural highways. Most travelers walked alone or in small groups, thus becoming prime targets for armed outlaws who robbed them. These raids were often violent and resulted in the loss of money, clothing, and merchandise. Bandits often kidnap their victims, either for ransom or to use them as slaves, while many tombstones throughout the empire reveal another possible outcome of an unfortunate meeting with highway robbers, death, right? So when you see this text, Proverbs 16, 25, that says, there is a way that seems safe, there is a road that seems safe to a man, but ends in death. I would say that the majority of people who read that text originally would have known someone who either ran into a robber or knew someone who knew someone who ran into a robber. They would have had a very clear understanding of this idea of a trip, of a path that seems like it's going well, suddenly to end in tragedy. Now, Proverbs has a lot of thinking about roads and paths, it's it's an idea that appears repeatedly throughout the book of Proverbs. And in addition to this sort of idea, the idea of you're traveling long, things seem safe, all of a sudden you're overcome, there's another kind of word picture that interweaves throughout that idea in the book of Proverbs, and that is the idea of a snare. And it is the same idea. Robbers are to people what snares are to bunny rabbits, right? Like it's the same idea. A hunter or a trapper finds a path commonly followed by an animal, and then perhaps diverts that path slightly with an obstacle, an artificial obstacle, putting a rock in the way, putting a branch in the way, and so on and so forth, so as to steer the innocent animal in a one particular direction. And when that animal goes in that particular direction, it walks into a snare. And so you can actually just trace all of the snare language through Proverbs and map that on next to all of the path language in Proverbs and see that this is a book that has this metaphor as key to understanding the way that life can go unexpectedly wrong. And really the basic idea is pay attention to the road you're on. Pay attention to the road you're on. And don't assume that you understand the road that you're on As clearly as you think you do. Now, if you were to work through the book of Proverbs as I did, and you know you started picking apart the snare language, you'd see that there are like there are these snares that we're told about. So we're kind of given warning by our loving Father in advance. And one of the snares that you might have heard in Proverbs is it says that the fear of man is a snare. It says elsewhere that a lying tongue is a snare. It says that anger is a snare. And I believe, if I'm understanding, if I've read it correctly, that the very first time the snare idea appears, it appears in Proverbs 7, following the adulterous woman. So Proverbs gives us some predictions, like if you're on these paths, if you're engaged in these behaviors, be prepared for the thief who steals, kills, and destroys to come upon you suddenly. Don't think that these paths are as safe as they feel like they are. But the context in Proverbs 16 seems to be pointing us to, I think, the deadliest of all possible paths, and that is the path of self-righteousness. William Secker, he was a Puritan and one of the pithiest of the Puritans. I was excited to say that. The pithiest of the Puritans. He really knew how to turn a phrase, and he was exceptionally good at locating in particular the problem of pride. And he, I just want to share a few quotes that, from him. One is, a true Christian no more trusts in the best of his services as in the worst of his sins. God abhors those people worst who adore themselves most. But here's the one relevant to our discussion at this point. Many have passed the rocks of gross sins who have suffered shipwreck upon the sands of self-righteousness. All of the various snare language in Proverbs deals typically with gross sins, but there is one path that is not involving a sin that we would call to be a gross sin, that Secker claims has shipwrecked more lives than any other, and that is the sin of self-righteousness. Now, The truth is, is that we were all born on the path of self-righteousness. That is part of our inheritance under Adam and Eve, our original spiritual father and mother. We were all born on a path of self-righteousness. And it's very rough and very tragic when you realize that there are billions of people in the world on the road of self-righteousness, and that path seems right to them. It feels right to them. And here's the problem. In the end, that path of self-righteousness leads for them to a sudden and surprising death. In Matthew 7, Jesus teaches, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name?' and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is describing the epitome of Proverbs sixteen twenty-five. 25. There's a group of people who are walking on a path right now they believe to be righteous that is in reality self-righteous and therefore, according to Jesus, lawless. Jesus is warning, this is a major problem he's encountering as he's walking around the people of Israel. The self-righteousness is a major problem. He's finding many people on that path, and he's trying to warn them repeatedly through teachings and parables that this is indeed a ruinous path. And so I just want to speak to a mo- for a moment to anyone who has never consciously repented of self-righteousness and trusted in Christ's righteousness instead. And what I mean by that is, is there are many people who envision the end, that they will one day encounter God and they will face a comparison seat when it says in the Bible they will face a judgment seat. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul actually says... We will all face, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the person that's on the path of self-righteousness, they, I think, often imagine that when they die, they will not face a judgment seat, but a comparison seat. And they think that their entrance into heaven or hell will depend on their comparative goodness when shown against other people. Right? That's their plan for salvation. The plan for their salvation is to pass a comparison test. And the Bible clearly teaches that we're not going to stand before a comparison seat, we're going to stand before a judgment seat. Jesus tells another parable. Again, these are all intended to grab these people's attention who are walking on this path they think is pleasant. And he tells this parable. He says, uh, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, he's envisioning that his encounter, his ultimate encounter with God, will be based on how much he stands above or apart from other people who are worse than him. He says, I thank you that I am not like these things. And then he has this self-righteousness boast in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That is, made right with God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. This is that uh, height language again. Exalt is another elevation idea. But the one who humbles himself, that's lower, he will be exalted. So friends, one of the things that I want to mention to you this morning is we've talked about comparison here and there. And I think most of the time we think that comparing ourselves to others is bad because it causes us to feel discontent and bad about ourselves. But that's the best possible outcome of comparison. You shouldn't compare because eventually, this is worse, you'll compare favorably to those you compare yourself to. And now you're on the path of self-righteousness. The danger of comparison is not your self-esteem, at least not in a negative direction. The real danger of comparison is that it does indeed lead to a sense of self-righteousness. And so you have these two men in the temple, one engaged in an act of comparison and the other engaged in just honestly, humility before God, a sense that God is judging him for him. And if these two men that day when they went home had died in their sleep, the Pharisee would have been the tragic fulfillment of Proverbs 16:25. There was a way that seemed right to a man, and he awoke from his death before the judgment seat of Christ, and Jesus said to him, "Depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness." And if the tax collector had died that night in his sleep, he would have woken from death standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and Jesus said, "You asked for mercy." here it is. Here it is. I'm glad to give it to you. So we're going to move on from this idea in a moment, but the most important outcome today's message could could possibly provide is that someone who has been walking on the path of self-righteousness says, you know, I don't think I've ever actually repented of trying to earn my salvation. I don't think I've ever actually repented of that. I think that I think that I've been around God's people and I've used God's word and I've even learned some of God's word, but I don't think that the basis of my faith is the same as what this Pharisee, this tax collector had. I don't think the basis of my faith is simply this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so I would encourage you like really just to check your heart and understand is that the basis of your faith? Is mercy and grace the basis of your faith? Is, 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 are you aware that you will face a judgment from God that you cannot stand up under? Jesus said that the whole law can be summarized as this, that you have loved the Lord your God with every fiber of your being, with all your strength and all your might, and that you have loved your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard you will face one day when you stand before God. Do you really want to enter into that moment with a list of your achievements? It won't be enough. And so though there is a way that seems right to a man that ends in death, God is kind. He does tell us in advance you don't want to walk along this road. You want to get off this road as soon as possible. And so that would be my appeal to you this morning— If you don't know for sure that you have made mercy your theme, if that is your only hope for salvation, if if you don't know for sure that mercy is your hope for salvation, then call it to the Lord as this tax collector did and go home justified. Call out to the Lord as this tax collector did. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and go home with this tax collector justified. The only thing I'd say to that, add to that, is do it now. Spurgeon has an incredibly powerful quote where he said, Pride is the devil's dragnet in which he takes more fish than in any other except procrastination. And, of course, if we read James, we can see, and in other texts as well, we can see that procrastination is a kind of boasting about tomorrow and actually flows from a heart of pride. And so I would appeal to you to make sure that mercy is the basis of your hope that the mercy of god is the basis of your hope and i would appeal to you to make sure today that the mercy of god is the basis of your hope there's an old hymn that says let not conscience make you linger nor a fondness nor a fitness fondly dream all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him and so the first point This morning is just to understand we all were born on a road of self-righteousness, and we all must, by God's grace, accept the mercy provided to us by Jesus Christ's death so that we can get off of the road that leads to death. Just a final warning from the great Thomas Boston who said that such is the natural propensity of a man's heart to the way of the law in opposition to Christ he's talking about the self-righteous person he says that just as the just as the tainted vessel turns the taste of the purest liquor put into it so the natural man will turn the very gospel into law and would transform the covenant of grace into a covenant of works you don't need more church time Even your church time is tainted by your pride. You need to choose Jesus today and make him your only hope for salvation. Until God changes the inside of your vessel, even the pure gospel will be tainted in your soul and turned into law. Edward Carnell wrote, Men cannot be righteous in God's sight, until he repents of his own expectation that he can be righteous in his own sight. God is not mighty toward man until man is weak toward God. Now, we're all born on that road, and God offers us salvation to escape it, but here is a bittersweet truth. The Christian will never stop struggling with self-righteousness. One of the sins we need to just absolutely normalize and not be surprised by when it appears amongst our fellow brothers and sisters and even in ourselves is the sin of self-righteousness. There will be many life events, some of them so subtle as to not even be called life events, that will bump you or detour you off of the road of Christ's righteousness and back onto the road of self-righteousness. I've come to believe what I think is a somewhat depressing truth. And that is, is that you and I are simply going to have to watch out for self-righteousness until the day they put us in the ground. The Christian will never get into a state of maturity that moves him or her beyond this danger. You know how I can tell you that with such clarity and authority? Well, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is telling a story. He's a godly man, Paul. He loves loves God, he loves his neighbor, and he is a humble man. And there is no biblical writer that has been as explicit about the doctrines of grace as the Apostle Paul. And he tells Timothy, his son, his spiritual son, and he's not using hyperbole, he tells Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. And yet in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is describing that he had had a very profound spiritual experience. He says he was caught up in some kind of ecstatic vision and had seen what he describes as the third heavens. Don't get distracted by what that is. Listen to what he says after. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Here is a man who knows he is the chief of sinners. Here is a man who has articulated the doctrines of grace as clearly as any biblical writer. Here is a man who loves God, who is far more mature than all of us, and he is still in danger of becoming self-righteous. So it is a bit of a dismal but true truth, and if Paul never moved beyond the temptation towards self-righteousness, then it is something you and I are going to have to contend with for the rest of our lives. Now, I can't stay in Second Corinthians 12, but I can tell you the good news is, is that God has a deep invested interest in helping you. The bad news is, is that as we see in this story, his help often comes through suffering. God loved to answer Paul's prayers. God was eager to answer Paul's prayers. God did not answer Paul's prayers when he prayed three times. For the thorn in the flesh, which was meant to keep him humble, he asked God three times, remove it. And the God who loves to answer Paul's prayers did not answer that one, but rather said, my grace is sufficient for you. As much as God loves you, as much as he is for you in Christ, he is your father, and like a good father, he will guard you against conceit and self-righteousness. Let's hit pause for a minute and talk about parenting. There is a difference not easily seen in Christian homes, between parents who actually love their children and those who don't. And it's simply this. Parenting is hard, it's annoying, it's frustrating. We're all looking for a break at all times. And the parents who do not love their children, once their children exhibit enough external righteousness so as not to embarrass them or bother them, will stop talking to them about their need for Jesus. The parent who does not love their child will allow self-righteousness to be manifest in their homes. They're not even looking for it because all they need is for little Tommy to obey. A parent who loves their child will not find obedience to be enough. They will, like the father does with Paul, insist on something more, an end of self-righteousness, an end of that destructive path. And so you can detect this in your own parenting timeline and ask yourself very sincerely right now, do I check out when the behavior is fine? That's a hard and important question to ask. The main point is simply that, as Christians, we are never going to exceed Paul, and we are never going to outgrow the possibility of self-righteousness. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time—we're making a good time. I had to cut this down a lot, but we're good. I want to spend the rest of our time walking you through four different areas, sort of life events— that can move you as a Christian off of the road of trusting in Christ's righteousness and being fully aware and in love of His mercy, uh, let's, talk, let's talk about these as on-ramps or off-ramps, whatever, one of the two, where you leave a gospel-centered way of living and you move into self-righteousness. There are four on-ramps I want to put before you, and the first one kind of comes from the text in Second Corinthians, and that would be theological growth, theological growth. And you're going to see, as I give my list, that it is not wise or possible to avoid these things. You cannot say, because theological growth poses the risk of conceit, I will simply not grow theologically. You're being dumb. Don't do that. And you certainly wouldn't do it with a few of the other ones I'm going to talk about. One of the ways that we can grow conceited is through theological growth. Paul says that he had a great revelation. What is a great revelation? A great revelation is an insight into God. And yes, you can be taken off of the path of being a mercy-loving, joyful, trusting-in-Christ-alone guy or gal onto the path of being a self-righteous doofus Through theological growth. John Newton, there are two men that were both Calvinists who we can trust in their assessments, at least two men, of potential problems related in particular to those who have grown in their doctrines of grace. It's important to understand why this matters to us. The doctrines of grace are presented actually in Scripture, in Ephesians 2 in particular, as an antidote to boasting. You are saved by grace. You're saved by faith through grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we tend to think that once we accept this particular theological perspective, we are somehow immune from self-righteousness. It is exactly the opposite. One of the men who we can trust to comment on this was John Newton himself a Calvinist and he said this I am afraid there are Calvinists who while they account it a proof of their humility that they are willing to willing in words to debase the creature and to give all the glory of salvation to the Lord yet know not what manner of spirit they are of whether it be that makes us whatever it be that makes us trust in ourselves that we are comparatively Comparatively, comparatively wise or good, so as to treat those with contempt who do not subscribe to our doctrines or follow our party is a proof and fruit of a self-righteous spirit. Self-righteousness can feed upon doctrines as well as upon works. And a man may have the heart of a Pharisee while his head is stored with orthodox notions of the unworthiness of the creature and the riches of free grace, guys. This, this is not not just possible. This is common. Another man we can trust, Charles Spurgeon, who gets a little saucy here. If you enjoy angry Spurgeon, he's actually quite enjoyable. Godly angry Spurgeon is a fun Spurgeon. Uh, look up anything he has to say about pride. He thinks he says in one place, "Pride is insanity." He just rips pride. It's beautiful. Here he writes There is a certain breed of Calvinists whom I do not envy. I have seen their long faces. I have heard their whining periods and read their dismal sentences in which they say something to this effect Groan in the Lord always. Again I say, Groan. Or he that mourneth and weepeth, he that doubteth and feareth, he that distrusteth and dishonoreth his God shall be saved. That seems to be the sum and substance of their very ungospel like gospel. But why is it that they do this? I speak now honestly and fearlessly. It is because there is a pride within them, a conceit which is fed on rottenness and sucks marrow and fatness out of putrid carcasses. And what, say you, is the object of their pride? Why, the pride of being able to boast of a deep experience The pride of being a blacker, grosser, and more detestable sinner than other people. Whose glory is their shame might well apply to them. A more dangerous because of a more more deceitful pride than this is not to be found. It has all the elements of self-righteousness in it. You will encounter people who need you to know how spiritual they are but have conformed their language to Calvinistic standards, so they boast in their brokenness. It's like, just stop talking about that. Just stop talking. As C.S. Lewis says, sometimes when you encounter a humble man, you will not think he's humble. You will simply notice he did not talk that much about himself. So one of the possible avenues towards self-righteousness, getting off the path of trusting in Christ, getting on the path of trusting ourselves again, something that we will always struggle with as Christians is theological growth. A second is this, pleasant circumstances or personal success. Pleasant circumstances or personal success. Uh, If you were going to find one book that gives you the best theological treatment on this in the Bible, it would be the book of Deuteronomy. It is a book God is writing to people who have suffered a great deal of trauma, pain, uh, consequences for their sin. And now they're about to end, enter into the promised land. And what, what should we use to typify? What is the promised land? The promised land is the grace land. It is the place where everything is there and you didn't build it. The promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. And so God is preparing the people. He's also preparing Moses. He's speaking through Moses. Moses is not going to enter the promised land. And one of the words that comes up over and over, one of the phrases that comes up over and over in the book of Deuteronomy is, do not forget. Do not forget. So what's going on here? Well, it's explicitly said in multiple places, but let me just read one, Deuteronomy 6.10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olives that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." pleasant circumstances, or personal success can bump us out of gospel living and into self-righteousness quite easily. Because we see signals of our own virtue all around us. The key to staying, and I'll get back to this in a moment, the key to staying on the road of Christ's righteousness in the midst of good times or personal success is the last part there that God said, remember that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You are and were slaves unless I hadn't freed you. Now, there are various seasons of pleasantness. Let me go through a few. Maybe you finally got married. This is the first time I see pride erupt in young men often. Um, I have often wondered, what happens to a young man who is going along fine and suddenly has a, a pretty girlfriend? Well, there's a proverb for this, and I can't remember the reference, but it says, the earth trembles under the weight of a servant who is made a king. Early success in any area can often be ruinous in this direction. But very often, when a couple gets married... Their lives are sweet and pleasant in incredible ways, and it is very easy in those moments to think that you were born on third base, but hit a triple. It is very easy in those moments to assume you did something. I'll tell you another example that this was really shows up. After many struggles over a long period of time, you overcome some gross sin, for instance, pornography. During that period of time when you were so aware of your sinfulness, your hypocrisy, and your struggle, you also were fully aware that you had no other hope but mercy. But after some long battle with some deep sin, you get victory. You are just as apt as the Israelites entering the promised land to forget who got you there and how you got there. And you got there through grace. And you got there through mercy. It is a shame but true very often that people, when they are delivered from a gross sin, get delivered into a grosser sin, that being pride and self-righteousness. The third life circumstance is extreme sin in your social circle. And I actually think I would probably change that point to just say extreme sin in your social circle or in your culture. One of the life events that can bump us off of the path of gospel-centeredness and into self-righteousness is observing someone, or maybe even a group of someones, engaged in gross sin. When we see that, we are suspect to what Tim Keller calls the older brother syndrome. And he's referring, of course, to the prodigal son story, where the gross sinner gets saved We're not so sure the self-righteous dude's going to make it out alive. Discovering gross sin in someone else's life can push us into a path where we join the Pharisee in the temple saying, I thank God that I am not like that. And we do not mean I thank God. We think I thank me that I am not like that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote in Life Together, self-justification, this is, this, he's pairing two behaviors, self-justification, which is self-righteousness, and judging others go together, and justification by grace and serving others go together. So one of the ways you can tell when you are not on the gospel-centered path anymore is you look at others with constant Judgment. Well, this is the twin brother to your other problem, which is self-righteousness. And Keller very helpfully offers a warning in particular to the possibility that we can become self-righteous, not only in the face of various gross sins, but also in the face of self-righteousness. This is crazy. This is how messed up we are. We can become self-righteous in the face of others' self-righteousness. Keller writes, it is simple, we can become self-righteous against those who are self-righteous. Many younger evangelicals today are reacting to their parents' conservative, button-down, rule-keeping flavor of older brother religion with a type of liberal, untucked, rule-breaking flavor of a younger brother's irreligion, which screams, that's right, I know I don't have it all together, and you think you do, I know I'm not good, and you think you are good, that makes me better than you. See the irony? In other words, they're proud that they're not self-righteous. And perhaps you can begin to feel how it is going to be impossible in this life to ever be free of this. It is We're never on the other side of this one. I've seen Christians really substantially and, and sort of, I would say, permanently delivered from just about every sin in a way where just like It just almost would just seem impossible that they would ever fall back into this or that thing. Wouldn't say never. But I've seen people with substantial anger issues become deep wells of patience. I've seen people with substantial addiction issues uh, develop deep wells of self-control. This one, as soon as you make progress in any other area, your flesh is there to remind you of the progress you've just made. And the fourth area would be criticism, especially when you believe that criticism to be unfair or untrue or uninformed. Another Puritan by the name of Wilcox writes, when nature is hard put to it. When he says nature, he means our sinful nature. When nature is hard put to it by guilt or wrath, it will fly to its old haunts of self-righteousness, self-goodness. So most animals have some sort of home base that they would run to if they were scared. Sarah was over the other day and the cat was there. She brings the cat with her and, and I was walking down the hall. The cat hates me and I saw the cat. The cat immediately chose to be evil because a, it's a cat, uh, totally depraved, uh, and immediately runs underneath you know the bed. It's like, where do you go when you're scared? Where do you go when you're under attack? Where do you go when your spouse says something hurtful to you? Where do you go when someone says something hurtful to you? Wilcox says, you have an old haunt, and it comes from your first nature, the path you were born on. Where do you fly when you're angry, when you're scared, when you feel guilty? It's often to the old haunt of self-righteousness and self-justification. And you ever wonder how you can actually genuinely love your spouse? and wind up in a train wreck of a conversation, this is what's going on. Now, that all is a way of discussing there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. And the man and woman who's never been saved, there is just no other nature, no other option, They simply keep staggering toward the slaughter until God gives them grace to repent. But the person who has been born again, you you have repented of this, but you must keep repenting of it. You must keep repenting of it. And I just want to leave you with one weapon in the fight against self-righteousness that This seems to me to be sort of like the obligatory on the level of going to church, spiritual discipline, every Christian must engage in thoughtfully, consistently, intentionally, and that is the spiritual discipline of gratitude. What is the best weapon we have to fight against self-righteousness? Well, I would say, I'm just going to give you not just an idea, but I'm going to give you an actual paragraph. Martin Luther. Two things about Luther. He was extremely proficient in spiritual warfare and fighting off the robber that waits at the end of the road of self-righteousness, the tempter who tempts us to get off of the road of the gospel. He's extremely proficient in spiritual warfare and also a big gratitude man. And those two things I do not think are coincidental. And so 500 years ago in his small catechism, he wrote the following. I believe that God has created me and all that exists, that he has given and still preserves to me body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my limbs, my reason and all my senses, and also clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and child, land, cattle, and all my property, that he provides me richly and daily with all the necessaries of life, protects me from all danger, and preserves and guards me against all evil, and all of this out of a pure, paternal, divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness of mine, for which I am and duty bound to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. And then as Luther ends all of his catechisms, he says, this is most certainly true. i am presenting this to you not just as a general abstract idea, but as something you should find and put in your phone, on your desk, or on your refrigerator. And whenever a pleasant circumstance that doesn't include shoes or cattle or whatever, put it in there. Just list it in there. And whenever there's some danger that you've been protected for, put it in there. Whenever you see gross sin in someone else and God has kept you from it, put that in there. The point is is that all of that stuff at the top ends. All of this, all of this, all of this I have comes out of a pure, paternal, divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness of mine. That's, I think, the one tool we can pass off in the time it takes to preach a sermon to keep us returning time and time again to the past path of Christ's righteousness. To introduce communion this morning, I want you to look at Proverbs 16.7. Proverbs 16.7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And let's go straight to the Christological meaning of this text. Self-righteousness is so offensive to God. It is offensive in a delusionary kind of way but also in this sense of he gave his son. How dare I ever think there was another way. There is no other way under heaven or earth by which men may be saved. And so we were, if for no other reason other than our self-righteousness, at enmity with God. And this proverb says, interestingly, that when a man's ways please the Lord, God will make that man's enemies at peace with him. And there are all sorts of human explanations for how this works in our lives and so on and so forth. But I hope you can see the gospel implication. And that is, is that Jesus Christ has come and his ways have pleased the Father. And through his perfect life and death and resurrection, he has made even his enemies at peace with him. Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and by that I mean this, your only hope for heaven is the mercy of God extended to you on behalf of Christ, because of Christ, I want you to come and partake of this table that we observe every single week that reminds us of our Lord's death until he comes.